0: We are in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. And they came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who is the greatest. And he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And He took a child and he put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be able afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and you were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter crippled with two hands uh, than to go into hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we ask in these moments that you would still our wandering minds, that you would cause our hearts to... To dwell, to focus for this period of time on your truth. Your, your word is truth. It is a, a lamp unto our feet. And we pray that it would illumine our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, church, there's almost no debate about it, that the greatest theologian that the United States has ever, um, produced was that of pastor Jonathan Edwards. Uh, the work of Edwards has been tremendous. Um, it's been a, had a huge impact on seminaries, on uh, later theologians, and on pastors. Edwards' work on the glory of God, specifically his work as well with uh, love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, also his work on the sovereignty of God has all been very robust. It's been extremely helpful. And yet Edwards is strangely remembered and known for one particular sermon more than anything else. It's not a sermon on love. It's not a sermon on, on, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, grace or God's glory, but rather it's a sermon on hell entitled sinners in the hands of an angry God. I wish he was famous for some of his other works more than this work, but it is an important doctrine. Um, it's an important thing to consider. His, in his sermon, he says that the unconverted man or woman walk over the pit of hell on a rotted covering. In, in other words, the non-Christian man or woman walk on a thin blue tarp that is already shredding. And at any moment, they could slip and fall through. He goes on to say, and listen to these words. The reason why they are not fallen already and do not fall now is only that God's appointed time is not come. For it is said that when the due time comes or appointed time comes, their foot shall slide and they shall be left to fall as they were inclined by their own weight. God will not uphold them in these slippery places any longer, but he will let them go. And then at that very instant, they should fall into destruction As he that stands on such a slippery, declining ground on the edge of a pit cannot stand alone. When he is let go, he immediately falls and is lost. Now this sermon, you have to understand, was so pregnant with danger and warning that it was said when he preached this sermon to his Massachusetts congregation, the people sitting in the pews lifted up their feet lest they should fall through this thin covering into the pit. And yet, friends, I would submit to you, we live in a rather different world, don't we? We live in a world where hell is kind of just a snicker word. Hell is a ha-ha-ha type of word to you and I. Um, But did Jesus believe in hell? Did he hold to a view that was in line with what Edwards preached here? Further, what are the warning signs for those on the path versus those who are on the path with Christ and his followers to heaven versus those on the path to hell? This morning, we're going to circle back to this question and circle back to looking at this idea of hell. But before we do, I just want to let you know if you're visiting with us this morning, this is not a topic that I thought, well, let me see out of two or three things I'd like to preach this morning. This one has percolated to the very top. I can't wait to bring up this subject with you. But where we're at in our series in Mark, as we read through the Word, we want God's Word to instruct us on all things, both things joyful and things terrifying, both things helpful and things that really give us pause for thought. So you need to understand, we've arrived here naturally on this date. Okay. So to get back to this consideration of hell, we're going to look first and get there by looking at the posture of a disciple. This is where we're at here this morning in the book of Mark, looking at two types of postures of a disciple. One is the posture of a disciple who acknowledges the least. And then we'll conclude our time by looking at the posture of a disciple who does not acknowledge the desires of the heart or self. So first, we're looking at the posture of a disciple, one who acknowledges the least. Here, this is the second time in this cycle. This is the second time that Jesus has come around and explicitly told his disciples about the coming cross. They seem, in this section, to neither really want to understand nor really want to think about these things. I'm not sure if you've ever received news Uh, in which you're saying, I don't want to believe this. I don't want to hear this. I'm just shutting this out. I'm ignoring what all the implications of this are. Moving on. Thank you. It's as if the disciples do that. Here, they remain avoidant to a Messiah that would suffer. They They seem avoidant to truly embrace this idea of a Christ who would need to die to save them. And Mark shows us, this leads them to consider a whole different scenario. They stop up their ears. We don't want to hear this. We're focusing on this. Not on Christ's suffering, but on themselves, exalted and great. Jesus, knowing what they were discussing, he says, Hey, what were you talking back there on the road about? He knows. He knows. Tell me what you guys are talking about. Nobody wants to answer. Nobody wants to admit They were arguing and debating about, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. I'm greater. No, me. They were foolishly arguing and arguing. And then Jesus interjects here what I believe to be perhaps the main thrust of the second act in the book of Mark. Recall that there are three acts. We're now in this middle one on the road, on the path. And while they're on this road, they're discussing and talking. It seems to be that Jesus interjects this main point here that if anyone would be first. He must be last and servant of all. The principle seems rather straightforward to you and I. I know many of you, you've experienced this. You understand this from the receiving end. I don't know if you're like me, where you've had a, a boss in particular who, um, you know, he might show up unannounced. And I had one in particular, he would he would wait for a month. I wouldn't see him literally. And then next thing you know, he would show up. And then he would nitpick this tiny little thing in the corner while missing the overall good picture. And and he was extremely unhelpful in this regard. But also, I had another boss who, when I worked with him, he had my back so hard that if I called him up and said, I need help, he would show up and scrub the floor if that's what it took to help me do my job well. Working with him was a joy. He made the entire company thrive because of his work to lift everybody up. He was the greatest leader because he became the lowest and the servant of all. The contrast between these two bosses that I had couldn't have been any greater. And here with Jesus and the disciples, the contrast couldn't be any greater either. Jesus was just discussing he's going to give up his life. The disciples, they're discussing how they're going to fulfill their life. Jesus is saying, I humble myself to death. The disciples, they argue about who is the greatest. And the reasoning behind this, we understand. Uh, The more you delve into early first century Judaism, you understand. And even prior to this, there was a strong hierarchy structure. You always knew the pecking order of everyone. Who's on top? Who's important? Who had money? Versus who might be poor? Who might be the least? I think we do, in a similar fashion, have some of that in our culture. It's much less than was there with first century Judaism. But we, we also know, uh, you could tell, how people dress, the language people use, the letters after their names, and so on. You know this in the corporate ladder. Uh, how, how do you climb the ladder? You present yourself to be great. You, you make sure that your mistakes are covered up. You make sure that all the things that you've done well are accentuated and known by everybody in the company. But in Jesus' economy, in his kingdom, it's not that way. It doesn't mean that we are doormats as Christians, but it does mean we're living a life that is constantly trying to acknowledge others, trying to sweep them in, bring them in, care for them, and lift them up to serve others. And this goes from, this goes from a gamut of situations. Things f- physical, things s- emotional, things spiritual. We we care about all of these facets as Christians, trying to lift everybody up holistically. And elders, this is where I would want to remind you that we need to also um, recognize that we want to follow Christ by being a servant to his church, just as he is. Uh, That this means we need to be willing to grab the plunger, so to speak, And and it could mean not just grabbing the the metaphorical plunger, it may even involve us elders grabbing the physical plunger. Our work of prioritizing ministry of the word and a prayer is of great importance if we are to serve this congregation and to care for them well. It means we value doing a work with those in our congregation that are both prized by the culture and seem to be elite and by those that seem to be the least. Those that are at the back of the line. To bring this home, Jesus wants his disciples to see an illustration of exactly what he is speaking of. And so he places this child in the middle of the 12. You could picture them in a circle. He brings in this child. And you could see that they are taller. They're looking down at this child. And, you know, this is not, probably not a baby. You could uh, imagine more like a four or five or six-year-old standing in their midst. And they're looking down, and interestingly, Jesus must lift up this child. And now the child is, you could picture more at eye level here. And he swoops him up into his arms, and, he, and he's now talking, and he's probably smiling, looking at this child, and smiling, looking at the disciples. And he says, whoever receives such a one as a child in my name receives me. And he receives not me, but him who sent me, meaning the father. Now, even for us, we can see the implications of this move that Jesus does. But church, the first century Israelites grew up in an, in an era where children were considered to be worthless until they were full adults. The statistics, you have to understand, were not great for children. Children, they were oftentimes, um, they, they may not make it into adulthood. Uh, it wasn't uncommon during certain periods for you to lose half your children. So they, were, they weren't really paid much attention to. If you walked into a room and you were wondering who should you address? Who should you talk to? You certainly would ignore the children. You would probably not acknowledge the women. You would look for who are the men who are important. And you would then try to engage with them. But here, here Jesus turns this on its head. He says the kingdom principle is to value those who are considered by your culture to be unimportant, worthless, unvalued. If I can pick on a few people here within our midst, every Sunday morning there's something that happens that I love. Uh, Tim, Tim Ray will oftentimes he'll have his children in here in the in the sanctuary while we are uh, you know preparing for worship, and there'll be some who will sit, and Tim Ray's um, children will will sit with others and, and talk with them, and when when they engage and talk with these children who by all accounts might be considered to be the least, engage them as if, as if they're having a conversation with me or, or you. And still others, while, while we are worshiping, the children might be seated with others in this congregation, led into worship because they are valued and are important. And you can think of all the other children in this congregation that are in a similar place that we care for them in this way. I wish, oh, that we would all love the least in our midst just like that. So that we take Jesus' words to heart. Whoever receives one such a child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. To which we respond, yes, Jesus, I I understand. Children belong to the kingdom, therefore become like a child. Have childlike faith. To which we respond, no. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He says that elsewhere. Here, what's the emphasis? Become like the child? No, 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 no. Become like Jesus who holds the child, who cares for the child. To flush it out, become like Jesus who's humble, humbling himself by loving the most humble in his midst. How can you and I fulfill this call to discipleship, to acknowledge the least, to care for and love the least in our midst? Well, fathers and mothers, let me first just remind you and grandparents, you you can easily do this just by raising children, by caring for grandchildren. You are participating in what might be the most important discipleship process possible. It might seem obvious to you. It, it's probably overlooked. But the number one avenue of discipleship is parenting children. Uh, it, it's the most frequent, the most common. You have a captive audience for what? Maybe 18 years? And for most, the role of parenting involves getting low. It involves attending to the children above yourself, above your desires, your needs, your wants, your humbling oneself. You set aside your plans, you set aside your finances, and you're teaching them to love, to love Jesus. What about those here who are in management positions? What can you do? Well, do people who work for you sense that they are valued? Do your coworkers in your workplace feel that you truly value them, that you are a servant, even if you're on equal plane, that you serve them and lift them up? Do they sense that about you? Are you like my boss who would scrub the floor if needed to help your fellow employees do their job with joy? As a husband, do you love your wife first? Are you asking yourself, When the times arise, what is best for her? Not what do I want to impose on her. What is best for her? What will encourage her to Christlikeness? What will enable her to love God and her family more? How can I stir up her talents? How can I stir up her gifts so that she will shine? What about your finances? Do you use them to lift up others in need? Jesus says, If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. I'll tell you on Sunday mornings, there's one easy, tangible way that we can serve and serve our children, particularly by serving in the children's ministry, volunteering one Sunday a month, get low, love them, teach them, receive them like you're receiving Christ and therefore receive God. John then, at this moment, he's hearing all this, he's thinking through all of this, and he responds to Jesus. And you just think, wow, the disciples reveal themselves to be rather thick-headed. It's almost as if John says, Jesus, okay, I hear what you're saying about receiving uh, you, but what about those people who seem to be receiving you and yet really aren't with us? We see this in verse 38 where he says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us to which we have to wonder, did John, why did, why is it here that John begins with in your name? And then he ends with catch this following us. They were casting out demons in your name, but they were not following us. I wonder if Mark here wants to make it clear that at this point, with all that has occurred, these disciples are starting to think that they're part of some sort of elite club that they're Hollywood stars that's following the star. But they're now becoming hot stuff to the point they, they sadly begin to argue about their greatness. We see in 39 through 41 here where, but Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. For the one no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ by no by no means lose his reward. Christian, with the kingdom of God there is no elite club. Rather, anyone who proclaims Christ, anyone who is truly with Jesus and is given just even a, a small cup of water, they will be rewarded. The disciples needed to learn that they were a small part of something that would grow and become much, much bigger than they were. So rather than despise those who are not part of this inner 12, they're rather not to stop those who are doing kingdom work. It has been said that the most kingdom honoring thing that you and I could do is to rejoice when we hear about good gospel work going on down the road, when it's not happening in our midst. So I ask you, if if we found out the church down the highway here was breaking out in revival, while our church was just remaining ho-hum study, would you rejoice? Would you rejoice at that? Would you say, well, good for you, I guess. Or would you say, praise God. I'm so glad that he's at work here in our midst. Praise God. Well, the emphasis... so far this morning has been bent towards lifting others up, lifting up the one who is casting out the demon, lifting up the children who seeming insignificant, lifting up others and acknowledging them above ourselves. That's the posture of a disciple. But now we turn and we see the posture of a disciple is Also one who does not acknowledge their own desires of self. In other words, a disciple is one who denies the flesh, who says no to the desires of self where self says, please yourself. The Christian will say, I reject what my inclinations are because I so want to please Christ. I want to please him above pleasing myself. And this will get worked out in a few different ways that Jesus will highlight here. And this is where I think Jesus is bringing the picture of the child back into view. Recall. He's likely holding him in his arms the same child he said whoever receives such a child in my name receives me and now he says whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him if a millstone a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea Jesus is helping here the disciples to realize that they should not hinder any of God's people nor lead them into sin For the principle that whatever you do to the least of the children, for example, you do to Christ, either for good, like a cup of water, or for ill, like refusing to drive a demon out of one of them. But the point here I think is driven home also by the consequences. I'm not sure if you've seen lately a millstone. I've seen a couple. The ones I've seen are huge. The ones that were typical for that they put into use were large enough that you would typically latch it up to a donkey who would have to turn the millstone to grind the grain. They were massive. They were heavy. And this image here is graphic. It is not heartwarming. A person that has their neck tied to one of these stones, if that was your permanent condition, would be miserable and awful. But then, to be chucked into the ocean with that same millstone tied around your neck would, be, would mean one thing, really. It would mean horrible, deadly, permanent judgment. Let me say here what I think is obvious, and then I will say what I believe is less obvious about this scene. First, what is obvious? Is that anyone who harms, offends, or abuses children will face severe punishment. So friends, I say to you, church family, I know that some of you have been horrifically and awfully abused. I just want to remind you that God in heaven has not overlooked one of those offenses to you. He sees everyone and there is payment to be made for every sin on every human period. Further. I want to say a warning to those who would abuse children in any form or fashion. You need to hear these words, friend, and let them sink in. Let them sink deep while there is time for, to do so. Jesus ensures that payday is coming. And that there will be a punishment. And it will not be pleasant. And it will be permanent. So all the more does, does drive for us to seek forgiveness while you can. While you are still on the frayed blue tarp where any minute, at any moment, we don't know, you could sink through. As a church, we need to highly value protecting our children and highly value pointing them to Christ and the gospel. We ought to prioritize this among many other good things we could be doing. Now, let me say what is second and less obvious. I think it is while Jesus may have the view of children in mind, I mean, he may have this child in his arms at this moment, but the child is the illustration of who? I'd say yes, of children, but it goes beyond that. The child is the illustration of those who are pursuing Jesus and yet seem less important. They're the least of these of the man who was casting out the demons that the 12 disciples were told to told him, knock it off. You're not, you're not with us because you're not quote unquote great. Like one of the 12 here. Oh, don't you see friend, the value of the disciples of Christ. God so values his people from the least to the greatest. They need to be led into godliness, not into sin. And so therefore dealing with sin is serious. It is so important. So now we do consider and turn to the seriousness of hell. Now before looking at this text, I do want to recall a few things for you here in regards to the word hell. It's it comes from the Greek word gehenna, uh, which referenced a a valley outside of Jerusalem. So if you were in Jerusalem, you go to the south, it was this valley portion down there that was called Gehenna. And it it conjured up all sorts of uh, uh, thoughts and and feelings, really, if you heard the word. Uh, Because if you recall prior, this is the same valley that uh, King Ahaz and and King um, Manasseh had murdered their children there in, in this valley as child sacrifice. I think it's rather ironic. Jesus, here with this child, Talking about protecting the least. And he's referencing those who don't protect the least go to the place where child sacrifice occurred. And friends, this place was not pleasant. Eventually, it became the garbage dump of Jerusalem. It became the place where you hauled the garbage and they they at one point lit a fire there to start burning up the trash. And it never went out. They they constantly brought garbage there and constantly just kept the fire going. And so this is why the image of a place that is on fire and burning with rubbish and worms becomes clear. This is a place that you don't want to go. And I think Jesus uses this imagery to describe a place of final punishment and judgment that from his lips seems real, seems eternal, and seems Horrific. I know that hell is described by many adjectives here. Outer darkness, fire, torment, a place where the worms dwell in garbage. And many other places in scripture we see added pieces that describe this place as a place of torment. It's awful. And worse than all of these things is the fact that God's presence is not there. It's a place that seems to be absent from the grace of God. I'm not sure if you've heard of the term of common grace. Common grace is not the particular grace that Christians receive it's grace that is common for both Christians and non-Christians for believers and unbelievers alike this common grace is what we all enjoy and are benefactors of right now we we enjoy a beautiful day we we also enjoy moments of laughter together delicious food games music etc these are what are typically called common grace but in hell there's no grace There's no particular saving grace. There's no common grace. No grace at all. Just a guilt-filled conscience. So therefore, Jesus sternly warns his disciples by saying this in verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, for it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Here with hyperbole, I believe that Jesus speaks graphically, painting the picture that the the, the disciples, they need to take sin seriously. They need to cut it out of their lives. If you allow yourself to sin and not deal with it, then it seems to be on par with the seriousness of causing one of these little ones to stumble. Recall, Jesus had made it very clear back in chapter seven, that it is out of the heart that evil thoughts and actions spring. It's the seat of our will and our emotions, the core of who we are. But here we get a call to address some of the peripheral issues that lead someone to sin. Now, I know some of you may respond, well, Thomas, if we're just removing, you know, blocking myself in various ways from sin, is that not really, is that circumnavigating the heart and not really getting into the heart issue? But I think what Jesus has in mind here is the heart so takes sin seriously that it's willing to deal with the peripheral things, to block oneself because it shows and reveals a heart that is already engaged with trying to remove and get away from and turn to Christ. And therefore, the heart is being engaged. So, for example, some here, maybe, I don't know, some here, maybe they need to avoid the the beer aisle, the wine aisle at the grocery store. Don't even go down there to fetch a pop. It's too much temptation. Cut off the arm. Others here, maybe they need to get rid of their smartphones. Maybe they need to go back to using a flip phone or move their desktop computer out into the living room. Still others, maybe you need to put a chain around the freezer at night when you're tempted and give the key to your spouse. Still others, perhaps you need to turn off the soap operas. Maybe you need to turn off the news. If it's leading you to anger, if it's leading you to fear, if it's leading you and causing you to sin, cut it out of your life, friend. Get rid of it. Maybe you need to message or email or phone call a fellow member here and say, would you pray for me? I'm struggling with this. Would you pray with me and for me? I keep speaking hurtful words to my spouse. I I keep being tempted lustfully with my coworker. I I keep stumbling back into substances. Friend, where do you sin? Where is it that you struggle? What do you need to do to take that sin seriously and remove it from your life? Because Jesus is pointing out here. The consequences are dire. Dire. We have to be killing sin. We have to be killing sin. Lest it be killing us. Lest it be taking over your life and bringing you to destruction and ruin. Oh, friend, there's so much grace to be found in Jesus. There's so much hope. There's so much hope when we turn from what is enslaving us and become bound to our Savior. Well, to close out here, Mark. He uses Jesus' reference here with fire in relation to hell. And I admit here, if you're reading straight through, you you have to do some work because it seems as if it's a little bit obtuse in how Jesus is using some of these words here. Um, And and how Mark has pieced it together for us to hear this. Uh, But I, I think Jesus was using fire originally in a negative way. And it seems to be, and most commentators point this out, that now it's switched, and he's using it in a slightly confusing to our ears, but in a in a in a in a, uh, in a positive way rather than a negative way. Um, and so that by Jesus saying that he's using the salting with fire, it, it seems to be in the context here with the disciples, where he's recognizing they're going to face trials, they're going to face difficulties, and these difficulties come upon everyone. This is not. Casting into the lake of fire at this juncture. But it is the call on the disciples to recognize you will be peppered. You will be salted with with fire. And you need to endure this road of the cross. And, and the suffering even as they are servants of, of all. And this salting of fire causes Mark to think about how Jesus says also salt is good. It's a purifying um, thing in our lives. That This idea of salt is what they were to have. They were to be pure. No longer clinging to sin so now then the call to remain pure. And even as this text closed, to remain at peace with one another. Why? Because what had brought this whole thing on? On the road, they're arguing and bickering. I'm better. No, I'm better. No, I'm better. And Jesus says the posture of a disciple is one who's lifting others up, denying their own flesh. And so being at peace with one another. So Jesus highlights the true greatness comes from a disciple who gets low, so low they're lifting others up. And they do this by cherishing those who seem to be the least. They do this by removing temptations to sin and to fulfill their own desires. And therefore they remain in the congregation at peace. Some of you are saying, Thomas, I'm I'm hearing you. I'm hearing what you're saying about sin. I want to put others first. I want to be a servant. I I want to back away from my own failure. I I see progress at some times and other times it feels like it's one step back. Uh, And yet I also hear you talking here this morning about hell, about the seriousness of it, the dire and permanent consequences. And I'm thinking, I want to be more confident, Thomas, this morning about my position. Am I just walking on a thin blue tarp over a pit a mile deep? Question for you, Christian. Did you forget what we opened up with? When Jesus says, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Why is that? For God to love the world, the least of these, that he gave his only son to become a servant of all, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is good news for the sinner who sits here this morning, who believes in Jesus. This is good news for you this morning. Jesus says you want to be great? You're going to have to go low because you are following Jesus who went low. But how low? Hebrews, friends, tells us that there is none greater than Jesus Christ. He's the great high priest, the great prophet, the great king. Nobody goes higher than Jesus, which means nobody went lower than Jesus. Philippians puts it this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself to the glory of God the Father. Join Jesus, friend, in getting low. And where you fail to get low, remember, Jesus went lower to lift you up. Would you pray with me? Father, would you teach us to take our sins seriously? Would you lead us into loving others Seriously, and to love them well. And where we even fail at that, Father, would you comfort us with these words this morning, and with the cross and the truth that you were delivered up for us. Give us that joy. We pray today, in Jesus' name, amen.